Well, welcome, church, to our service. We are glad that you are with us. And uh, we are continuing on now from our Minor Prophet series from the book of Zechariah. There are 12 Minor Prophets altogether. We've made our way through 10 of them, and we're on our 11th one now. And I'll be sharing from the book of Zechariah. Of course, you all know where it's located now, so you might want to thumb there in your Bible, or you can open up in your Bible app. Now, there's a key division in this little graphic here, and that's the division of the exile pre and post. And so as we've been studying Bible history, we know that the northern kingdom was taken into exile by Assyria in 720 B.C. Judah, which was the southern kingdom, did not take note of how they needed to stay faithful to God. So 150 years later, unfortunately, they also were taken into exile. But at that time, it was by the ruling empire, which was the Babylons, the Babylonians. So when you see that line there, the first nine prophets spoke to Israel, trying to draw them back to God to be faithful prior to their exilement. Then, as Jeremiah prophesied, the southern kingdom, Judah, would be taken into Babylon for 70 years, up to 70 years, and then they would start being uh, repatriated back to their homeland. So this is what we're um, seeing now in terms of our historical time frame. I shared from Haggai a couple weeks ago, and now we're talking from the book of Zechariah. Now actually, Zechariah and Haggai worked hand in hand. Haggai was an older prophet. Zechariah was a younger prophet. Haggai was probably in his 70s to 80s, whereas Zechariah was a younger man approximately in his 20s. So the last prophecy of Haggai in December of 520 is when Zechariah started his ministry and took the baton, so to speak, from Haggai. Now the burden of both Haggai and Zechariah as the people of Israel came back was to restore the temple. Both their burdens was to inspire the people of God to rebuild the temple, which was the key symbol of their faith. Everything about their culture and people and politics and identity radiated from the temple. So it was absolutely essential to rebuild the temple because rebuilding it was the same as getting their faith back to get their center of gravity back. Now, 50 years prior to this, the people were in Babylon, but they began coming back. And for 16 years, the Jewish people tried to rebuild the temple, but they were discouraged and they weren't able to finish the job. So God sent Haggai and Zechariah to get the job done. And as we note in the historical time frame, four years later, after Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to them, the people of God were able to restore the temple, which is given to us in Ezra chapter 6, verse 15. So the question I want to ask is, how did Zechariah help his brethren pull off this milestone? That's what we want to look at today, but I just want to start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the lessons that are contained in your word. We thank you how they speak to us, even though we're thousands of years removed from it, that your word is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So today, God, as we hear the preaching of the word, may you speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you be the preacher in our living rooms, in our bedrooms, God, that we would receive life from you. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of my message this morning is <clears throat> Start Small. And big and stay humble. And the number of chapters in the book of Zechariah is 14, and it's actually the longest of the minor prophets. 
I quizzed you a couple weeks ago on what was the shortest prophetic book, and I know many of you answered Obadiah, so good on you. Now, the thing about these 14 chapters is that it divides itself into two main sections with two subsections. So the primary section, number one, uh, contains eight visions which God gave to Zechariah, which I've listed there on my PowerPoint. Now, what's very interesting about these eight visions is that it was not given over a period of years. It was given in a period of one night. So it was a night of furious spiritual activity and revelation. And the way that God gave these messages to Zechariah was very different from the way he gave Haggai his prophecies. Haggai has a very short ministry, only four prophecies over four months, and his language was very plain. But all of Zechariah's prophecies, if you've had time to study them, come in the form of visions and dreams and through angelic visitations. And this is why the book of Zechariah is considered to be the most messianic, most apocalyptic, and eschatological of all the Old Testament writings. Don't worry about those big words. It just means it was very metaphorical. And it's like the book of Revelations, except in the Old Testament. And it contributes more to the study of angels than any other book in the Old Testament. So it's a highly spiritual book, and it's quoted 41 times by New Testament authors. So my goal this morning is to take the strong, analogous, metaphorical nature of this book and make it as practical and personal as possible. Now, we don't have time to go through all the eight visions that are given to Zechariah, which are listed for you, but I encourage you to study each one and to find find the bottom line, find the punchline for each one of these visions that were given. So, for instance, the first vision that was given to Zechariah was the man among the myrtle trees. What are myrtle trees? And who is the man? And what is the message? Well, if you look at it in verse 16 of chapter 1, you'll find out that God was saying, I'm going to return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. Now, this was a very encouraging word because the last time they thought about Jerusalem, it was under judgment, and the house was being torn down. But now in this first vision that's given to Zechariah, he is giving the people of God a very encouraging word. I'm coming back to Jerusalem, and I'm going to pour out my mercy. So as you study these eight visions, you're going to find the punchline in every single one of them. And the sum total and the effect of these eight visions is that there were eight visions of blessing. And the people were inspired and the people were fed. And Zechariah is known as a prophet of encouragement. Unlike his predecessors, God didn't call Zechariah to proclaim judgment like Hosea or Jonah or Zephaniah or Obadiah. His assignment was different. Zechariah was like Barnabas in the New Testament. He was a son of encouragement. Now in the second section of this book, again on your PowerPoint, there are two key divisions. Chapters 9 through 11 and chapters 12 through 14. In that first subsection, the the theme there, the narrative is about the anointed king being rejected. And how God was sending his prophets and he was sending his leaders, and how the people of God rejected the king. But then later it turns around and how the rejected king becomes enthroned. So the sum of these last five chapters was to paint for Israel their future salvation and glory. They had much to look forward to. So we have a huge body of prophetic 
work that Zechariah gave to the people over 12 chapters. As I mentioned, the longest book in, among the minor prophets. How do we tie this message together? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to use chapter 4 as the pivot point. Chapter 4 as the pivot point. And so the idea here is that starting small summarizes chapters 1 through 8. The idea of starting small summarizes chapter 1 through 8 where they're rebuilding the temple. And this is given to us in chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, Do not despise, or in the NIV it says, Do not dare to despise the day of small beginnings. So the people that come back, they look at all this rubble, and they're like, oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? And the prophet says to them, don't despise this little start that you have in front of you. The second big idea here that comes from chapter 4 is the idea of ending big. And this summarizes chapter 9 through 14. And it's given to us here by Chapter 4, verse 9b, where Zechariah says to Zerubbabel, do you remember who Zerubbabel was? He was the governor. He was the key leader. He was the one that had to lead the people in rebuilding the temple. So Zechariah says to Zerubbabel, your hands will finish it. You're going to have a glorious end. This thing is going to be completed. And so this two-phrase formula, start small, end big, is actually a picture of what God does over and over in Scripture. It represents a divine pattern. It's how God brings the greatest glory to himself while maximizing our joy in him. This little phrase is a divine pattern, and it represents how God brings the greatest glory to himself while maximizing our joy in him. I was thinking about Abraham, how he was called by God to leave his land his property, his position, his security, and to immigrate to a place that he did not know where he was going to go. But in the end, when he ended up in the promised land, God gave him a staggering promise. Every place where you see, everywhere where you see your, your feet trod, this land is now yours. He left a country and he literally inherited an entire geographical nation. It'd be like if someone was asked to leave Arizona, and head north, and you don't know what's going to happen. And then they cross the border, and they touch the land of Canada, and God says, I'm giving you this entire country. You left without, nothing, you left without anything, and then you inherited everything, starting small and ending big. I think about Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. He and his twin brother did not get along, and Esau, through a series of circumstances, because his blessing was stolen, wanted to kill his younger brother Jacob. So Jacob flees from his brother like a fugitive with nothing but a kiss and hug from his mom and dad. And he goes to his uncle Laban in the land of Haran with nothing in his hand but a staff. Now 20 years later transpires and what happens when he comes back to his homeland he has two wives, 12 children and so much livestock that he had to split it into two companies. Just his gift to his brother Esau contained hundreds of goats and ewes and rams and camels and cows and donkeys. That's how wealthy he had become. He left without a penny in his pocket and he came back extremely, extremely rich. Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, was sold off as a slave by his brothers, gets thrown into prison, 
But where does he end up? He ends up as a prince over all of Egypt. Israel goes down to Egypt during a famine, just 70 people, a small tribe. But by the time Moses comes to deliver them, they they are over 1 million people, from 70 to 1 million. Start small and big. You can ponder King David, how he was a little shepherd boy. He was the youngest of eight brothers and wasn't even invited to his own installation ceremony. But he becomes the greatest king of Israel, even though he was forgotten at the very beginning. Samuel was a miracle baby, came from a mom who was barren and couldn't even conceive, and yet he ends up being the prophet of the nation. He was so powerful in his ministry that none of his words fell to the ground. And ultimately, he implemented the monarchy in the nation of Israel. And you think about the fact that Samuel wasn't even supposed to be born. Then you think about the New Testament, Jesus himself, who was born a king, but only born in a barn with animals. You can't have it more understated than that. When he dies at Calvary, he becomes the first member of the Christian church. Now, 2,000 years later, we have 2.3 billion Christians. A third of the world population are Christians. Peter, James, and John, uneducated fishermen, become the first apostles ever. Jesus said that the church is to be like a mustard seed, small and insignificant, but over time it becomes the biggest tree in the garden. Matthew 13. The Lord also says in that chapter that the church is like leaven, which is unseen and unheralded, but it impacts the whole dough. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that the church is the salt of the earth and light of the world. That's the sphere of our impact, the whole earth and the whole world. It speaks of global influence. So this is why Zechariah said in chapter 2, verse 8, that we are the apple of God's eye. Have you ever heard that phrase, the apple of God's eye? It comes from Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. God loves using small things to do great works, to change the world. It's how he does things. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. People will look and say, there's no way that could have happened through these people. God had to have done it. Maximizing his glory, but giving us maximum joy and satisfaction. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul summarized it this way. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised and things that are not to nullify things that are. I read this and I say, Amen. This gives us great hope and excitement and joy. We are the company of the overachievers. We are the biggest come-from-behind story in history. We are the greatest underdogs to ever win. Start small and big. Which leads us then to this question. How does it come about? How do we move from smallness to greatness? We know how we start. We know how we finish. But how does the in-between happen? 
The answer is given to us also in chapter 4, where Zechariah says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is the great empowerment. This is the great doctrine of the person of the Holy Spirit. This is the great doctrine of the Trinity. One in three and three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's so important that we love the third person of the Trinity as much as we love the first two. It's so important that we love the third person of the Trinity as much as we love the first two. The Holy Spirit is Jesus on earth. He is the third person of the Godhead. Now look at this diagram with me. And it shows how the Trinity loves and honors each other. When it, comes to, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, what does Jesus say? He says that the Holy Spirit will glorify me. He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Why then are we so scared of the Holy Spirit? Why do we have these doctrines that teach against the Holy Spirit? Why are we resistant to the Holy Spirit? Why are we at arm's length to the Holy Spirit when Jesus himself, whom we love so much, who we just celebrated last week on Easter, if Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he will take what's mine and glorify me, why are we afraid of the Holy Spirit? Jesus wasn't. He taught us to embrace and to cherish and to love and to delight in the Holy Spirit. And then what does Jesus do? He glorifies the Father. At the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, when the Father was manifesting himself to Jesus and the core team of Peter, James, and John, and this cloud comes on the mountain after meeting Moses and Elijah, the Father says, listen to him. Why does God say of Jesus, listen to him? Because Jesus will glorify the Father. So we have this beautiful upload sequence. The Holy Spirit will upload what is Jesus, and Jesus will upload what is the Father's. They work seamlessly together. They honor and love one another. But then we also have this side of the sequence. What does the Father do? He gives the Son. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He what? Gave His only begotten Son. And then what does the Son do? He gives the Holy Spirit. John 16 I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Now that's a pretty big thing to say because we all love Jesus. We all want Him to be around. But Jesus saying is my physical presence limits what God can do through the church. I need to physically go so that God can pour out his spirit on everyone so that the gospel can be preached to all nations so that all neighborhoods, all cul-de-sacs, all cubicles can be touched by those who believe in me. So it's to your advantage that I go away. Otherwise, the helper will not come. In John chapter 20, the Bible describes that Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3, John the Baptist says that of Jesus that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So you have this powerful honoring between the Trinity, upwards and downwards, or you can see it as this virtuous circle. We are to love the Holy Spirit as much as Jesus and the Father does. The Spirit in us is Jesus in us. But as one author has put it, the Holy Spirit is like the forgotten God. That He is lost in the excitement of 
the three. And why does this happen? It's because of our Western mindset, which favors the natural over the supernatural, the intellect over faith, the controllable over the untamable. The spirit, the Bible says, is like wind. It blows where it will. This comes from the discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 2, what does it say? The Bible says and describes the Holy Spirit as a violent rushing wind. We want to control the wind, but the wind is trying to harness us. We are the sail. He is the wind. But we're trying to be the wind and make him the sail. This is not how Jesus taught us to think about the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught us to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, to be empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit, and to be formed and fashioned into the personality of the Holy Spirit, as in the nine gifts or the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the way from smallness to greatness. That's why Zechariah said, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. Now we're talking about the Jewish people who are so smart, so intelligent, so accomplished. Even right now, if you forward 2,000 years later, in terms of representation, the Jewish people have more Nobel Prize winners than any other nation or ethnic group in the world. There are only 6 million people compared to 7 billion the Jewish people are blessed. They're intelligent. They're aggressive. They're military geniuses. One can set a thousand to flight and two ten thousand. You don't want to mess with the Jewish people. And yet God comes and says to, the, to them through Zechariah, it's not by your intelligence and it's not by your ingenuity, but it's by my spirit. Holy Spirit, it's God's greatness on loan to us. This is how the Lord did it. He himself was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He was commissioned by the Holy Spirit. He was on mission by the Holy Spirit. Jesus modeled for us how to move from small to big. This is what Zechariah 4 is about. We are the golden lampstand, which represents the government of God. And we must be supplied by the two olive trees, which speaks of God's anointing. I was thinking about Elijah this past week from 1 Kings 19. We know that he goes into this depression. And so God encourages him and says, okay, go meet me on this mountain. And so for 40 days, Elijah is in self-isolation. Doesn't go anywhere. It's just him and the Lord. But what happened when he was in that time of isolation? The depression was lifted off of him. The heaviness was lifted off of him. He thought that his life had come to an end. He thought his purpose as a prophet in the land had come to an end. For goodness sake, he had defeated the prophets of Baal by calling down fire from heaven. He thought it would ignite a national revival. But the opposite happened. Even though they saw with their own eyes that God brought down fire, the people didn't turn back to God. So Elijah's thinking, I was living for this moment. I've been praying for this moment. God showed me this was going to happen. And then when it happened, what he wanted to happen didn't happen, which was national revival. Instead of being lauded as a hero and hearing from God, Jezebel sends out this death threat against him. So he goes into this heavy depression. He literally prays that his life would just end. I think it's interesting 
that there are so many in this generation that is battling mental health difficulties. That there is, there is a kind of killing that is wanting to come on this generation, but God says, no, I'm going to redeem, I'm going to restore, I'm going to heal. Come to the mountain of the Lord. Come into self-isolation with me. Hear from me, and I'm going to lift that sickness. I'm going to lift that heaviness. I'm going to give you new thoughts, new clarity, and a new assignment. And that's what happened. Elijah heard the still, small voice. I really encourage you that this is the time that God wants to speak so clearly to you in the quietness of that private time between you and Him. There's not this noise that's going on. There's not the shaking and the fire and the wind. No, it's that gentle voice of God that comes to revive us. When we come out of COVID, which is this national self-isolation, this national quiet time, we're to be filled with the Spirit more than ever, not filled with fear and not filled with anxiety. But it's like COVID is, is causing us to go into this collective cocoon time. Like the caterpillar that goes into the cocoon and dies, but it comes out new and transformed with new wings. We used to operate down here, but when God speaks, we start living up here, flying with new wings. Elijah emerged from his self-isolation better than ever. He anointed kings and he anointed his successors. That's being filled with the Spirit. That's moving from glory to glory. That's being in a place of I'm so low to being now in a place where I'm so strong. The path from small to big is through loving the third person of the Trinity as much as we love the first two. Then we have this question to consider. How do we steward greatness once we've arrived? What is the appropriate response to this two-part formula? Well, in Zechariah 9.9, the prophet prophesied to the people of God, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now we're talking about a great reversal. Whereas before there was no shouting, only mourning. Whereas before there was no praises, only a dirge. Zechariah saying, listen, there's coming a time where there's going to be great rejoicing. And there's going to be shouts of triumph. And then he says this, which is quoted in the Gospels. As a picture of Jesus and what he modeled. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When we've achieved greatness, when God has brought us to that place of being the head and not the tail, being the biggest tree in the garden, being the most impactful, influential organization in society, how do we handle that kind of blessing? We need to stay humble. And if anyone had reason to be proud, it was Jesus. If anyone went from small to great overnight, it was Jesus. But how did Jesus handle greatness? He rode the donkey and showed his humility. And by the way, it's important to note here, Jesus did not deny his greatness. A lot of times we think the way that we fight greatness or notoriety, say, oh, no, 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 I, I'm not great, no, that's, that's not me, no. That's not how God says 
to steward the greatness that God gives. You acknowledge it. That is your portion. God has done that work. It's to stay, however, humble. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which we studied a few weeks back. One of the key verses. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly, humbly with your God. So this is a super simple formula. Start small and big, stay humble, but it's hard to execute. Because when we achieve greatness, we tend towards becoming big-headed. Hubris leads to demise. Pride goes before the fall. Greatness leads to self-glorification, self-worship, idolatry, and harlotry. I've got a million followers. I had 10,000 likes. Everything I post online goes viral. It's all about me. I love my crafted image. We believe our own publicity. We become big-headed and not big-hearted. And God had warned Israel of this. He said, when you become great because of my blessing, don't lose your way. If you study Deuteronomy chapter 7, God specifically says to them, I chose you not because you're so righteous and not because you're so good in my sight. I actually chose this because you're the fewest of people, because you're just the small little group. And from that smallness, I turned you to be the most blessed of all peoples. And then in Deuteronomy 8, that entire chapter is devoted to this thought. Don't forget me when you get blessed. Moses said, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks, your retirement accounts overflow with finances, and everything that's in your life multiplies, when that happens, your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Comfort induces a spiritual sleepiness. And it's such a deadly disease because it happens so quietly. But we have to stay spiritually alert and spiritually active to not allow the blessings of God to anesthetize us. Now, we just sang the song, The Blessing. And what I'm talking about doesn't refer to that blessing that God is pouring forth through the words of that song. That song speaks to what the prophet said, in wrath, remember mercy. There is such a favor, there is such a kindness that God is pouring out on us. And it cheers our heart and causes us to draw close to God. But when we are physically blessed and we have all the material things that we need, it can lead us to a place where we just begin to forget and drift and go away from the Lord. The story of Israel, unfortunately, is a cycle from small to greatness back to smallness. Because they were wayward. And so God had to send judgment upon their pride and sin. And then they had to start over. But Israel could have completely circumvented and avoided such judgment had they just stayed humble and grateful for, for, what, for where their blessings came from. They could have remained great all these years. And in that sense, being blessed is harder to steward than being poor. So what God did with the temple in Zechariah's day is what he wants to do right here, right now. Maybe you're starting an initiative. Maybe you're starting a company. 
Maybe your family is just getting going. It's a day of small beginnings. God wants it to be blessed and to be nourished and to have the flourishing of God. He wants you to end and grow that thing well so that it's strong and vibrant and brings glory to Him. He's going to do things for you that you could have never imagined. Miraculous God, Jehovah Jireh, is going to supply and do things in your life that you never imagined as your heart is inclined to Him and as you seek first His kingdom. He's going to lead you by His Spirit. Keep your ears always tuned to the Holy Spirit and your heart always tuned to the Holy Spirit. And for us as a local church, it doesn't matter how small or insignificant we are. When we rely on God's Spirit and fall in love with the Holy Spirit and move by the Holy Spirit, we will become great. And whatever sphere we're in, when we achieve that greatness, we stay there by humility. So, Father, we come before you right now. Lord, what an assignment you gave to Haggai and Zechariah to motivate the people to rise up once again to build the temple. Things did not look good, but your words stirred life within them. Your words stirred momentum in them. And they went from a place of just little beginnings to a place of great glory. This was how you brought glory to your own name and how you filled the people of God with great joy. But Lord, we don't want to make the mistake of becoming so comfortable in our achievements that we forget you. And so I pray, God, that you would put a fresh fire in our hearts in this hour, a fire for who you are, a fire for the Holy Spirit. Lord, that as we walk in faithfulness, you will do above and beyond all that we can think or imagine. We thank you this morning, God, for the message of Zechariah. We thank you for its encouragement. Let that come to us and feed us this day. We thank you. We bless you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I encourage you to go back to this book. Um, there's so much to study. I was only able to touch on a few key themes, but there are, are so many rich lessons for us uh, to take from that book. So this week, I encourage you to, to go back. Next week, Pastor John is going to be finishing our series from the Minor Prophets, from the book of Malachi. And then we're going to go into a season of what we call standalone sermons, where God will just quicken to us uh, words to bring to you, and, and we'll preach those. So God bless. Have a great week. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Sunday.